Welcome to the Gut Podcast. I'm Mary McLean, Senior Lecturer and Consultant in Gastroenterology at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland, UK. And in my capacity as Education Editor, I'm hosting this podcast today. This month, I'm discussing the Editor's Choice Manuscript from the February 2017 issue entitled Recent Advances in Clinical Practice, a Systematic Review of Isolated Colonic Crohn's Disease, the Third IBD. I'm delighted to welcome the senior author of the article here today, Professor Jonathan Rhodes, as Professor of Gastroenterology at the University of Liverpool in the UK. So thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Your review presents the literature evidence for isolated colonic Crohn's disease to be considered as the third IBD phenotype. How did this hypothesis arise? Well, I felt for some time that several aspects of isolated colonic Crohn's disease, genetics and serology, for example, uh, place it somewhere in between classical ileal Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Um, but by far the strongest reason for considering it as a third IBD comes from the recent study of genotypes and over 30,000 patients, huge study done by the International IBD Genetics Consortium and reported by Kleinan and colleagues in a Lancet paper in 2015. And I probably can't do better than to quote directly from their abstract, which concludes, uh, the data support a continuum of disorders within IBD, much better explained by three groups, idle Crohn's disease, colonic Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis, than by Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis as currently defined. So to start the paper, you give a historical perspective of the classification of Crohn's disease. Tell us more about this. Well, Crohn himself apparently didn't consider that his disease, as it were, affected the colon, um, and that probably had an influence over the first decade. So from the 1920s through to the 1950s, cases of colitis without rectal involvement were usually designated either as segmental colitis or even just regarded as a form of ulcerative colitis. And it was the, the classic paper in 1960, uh, written by the pathologist Basil Mawson, who sadly died last year, um, together with the surgeon Hugh Lockhart Mumry, that firmly established the clinical, radiological, and patho- pathological features of colonic Crohn's disease. Um, that they had recognized that the histology of the cases that they were calling colonic Crohn's was often very similar uh, to that of uh, more classical small bowel Crohn's. Later, though, it became apparent that maybe around a third of cases of colitis couldn't be firmly categorized as Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, sometimes even after colectomy. Um, And these cases were called indeterminate colitis, um, although in cases where a colectomy has not been performed, these are now more correctly termed IBD uh, unclassified. Um, So this uh, brought in the concept of colitis as a phenotypic spectrum, running from typical ulcerative colitis through IBD unclassified to typical colonic Crohn's. Um, Lockhart, Mummery, and Mawson had already described the link between colonic Crohn's and fistulation, uh, and the advent of pouch surgery led to the realization that patients with colonic Crohn's disease had a very high risk of developing pouchitis. Uh, And this, I think, led to an even greater emphasis on attempts to distinguish colonic Crohn's from ulcerative colitis. So you then consider isolated colonic Crohn's disease as a distinct phenotype from a number of different perspectives, and we'll talk through each of these in turn. So firstly, tell us about the epidemiology of this third phenotype in relation to the changing incidence and prevalence over time. Well, one of the reasons I was particularly interested in looking at this was that um, when I was a senior registrar in Birmingham in the 1980s, uh, I was involved in a study with Bob Allen and Elwin Elias in which we showed an association between oral contraceptive usage and colonic Crohn's disease. 
subsequently, uh, quite a large number of studies have confirmed an association uh, but between contra contraceptive usage and all forms of IBD, not just clonic Crohn's, including other forms of Crohn's, small bowel involvement, and ulcerative colitis. But these studies quite often haven't presented their data separately for isolated clonic Crohn's. Um, it was interesting, therefore, that in our analysis of the literature, we found that isolated clonic Crohn's was significantly commoner in women at 65% uh, than Crohn's disease at other, five, other sites, which was around 55%. Um, we were also interested to see whether there had been any change in incidence over the time period when oral contraception was changing from high-dose estrogen to lower-dose estrogen. Um, and there does seem to have been a bit of a trend. It's just statistically significant as shown in one of the figures in the paper, um, for an increase in the proportion of Crohn's, that is isolated clonic Crohn's, from perhaps around 15% in the 1960s, rising up to about a third by 1990, but falling off since then to, to maybe 20% or less. Uh, there could, of course, be many possible explanations for this, including uh, increased and, and more recently uh, perhaps better colonoscopy with commoner ileal intubation. But I still think the link between IBD um, and oral contraception deserves a bit more attention from clinicians. So what are the other epidemiological risk factors associated with this phenotype? Well, the environmental factors, like the genetic factors and also the serological factors such as ASCA and PIANCA and the phenotype itself, all tend to lie intriguingly somewhere midway between those of classic Crohn's of xylem involvement and classic UC. And this is perhaps most obvious for smoking. Um, where there's a significantly lower smoking rate in isolated clonic Crohn's, uh, around 38% roughly, uh, compared with 50% for Crohn's at other sites, and something around 15% for ulcerative colitis. So the smoking rate for isolated clonic Crohn's is arguably still just higher than in the general population, um, and the data uh, suggests that smoking at best has a neutral effect on disease course and more likely is slightly harmful. Diet, I'm sure, is likely to be important, but there are really no very substantial data on diet in isolated chronic Crohn's, um, apart from studies of ventral nutrition. Um, these are uh, very interesting, but a bit contradictory. Uh, there's some messages in either direction as to whether or not central nutrition is good uh, for uh, patients with um, isolated chronic Crohn's disease. Uh, and this is an important area for, for further research. And in, indeed, one of the reasons for writing this systematic review was to try and encourage people to do focused uh, therapeutic studies on, on this uh, important patient group. I've already mentioned the possible link with estrogen contraceptives, and it's worth also noting that there is a, a clearly established but rare condition of estrogen-associated ischemic colitis uh, that might occasionally cause diagnostic confusion. So there's no doubt that IBD has a strong genetic susceptibility profile, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but tell us about the genetic aspects of your new proposed classification. Well, the Lancet study by Kleinan and colleagues that I've mentioned uh, looked at an overall genetic risk score, uh, taking into account all known Crohn's disease and UC-associated risk alleles. And uh, what they did, which produced, a, I think, a very helpful figure in their article, which we reproduced in the uh, gut review, uh, what they did was to calculate a ratio between Crohn's-associated and UC-associated genes. Uh, and when they did that, they found that isolated clonic Crohn's disease lay almost exactly midway between typical Crohn's disease genetics, um, sorry, typical Crohn's with ileal involvement genetics, and typical ulcerative colitis, i.e. it was sort of equally similar or dissimilar to both. 
the strongest single gene association with isolated clonic Crohn's is with HLA-DRB0103, also associated with ulcerative colitis. Um, but there is also, unlike ulcerative colitis, uh, an association with NOD2, but substantially weaker than its association with Crohn's with small bowel involvement. Did you glean any clues from assessing features of isolated chronic Crohn's disease presenting at the extremes of the age spectrum, so both in childhood or the elderly population? Yes, I think this is quite important. And amongst children with very early onset Crohn's disease, there's a marked preponderance of cases with isolated chronic disease, about 77% before age five. And there's also a strong male preponderance in this age group, over 60%. And much of this is accounted for by X-linked single gene disorders affecting apoptosis or other aspects of leukocyte function. Uh, and these typically seem to cause uh, isolated colonic disease, chronic granulomatous disease being the first such condition to be characterized. In earlier studies, um, there used to be a peak reported in isolated colonic Crohn's incidence amongst the elderly. Um, but this seems to have largely disappeared from more recent studies, and I think it was probably mainly due to the now much better recognized condition of segmental colitis associated with diverticular disease, or SCAD, which I think um, 15 or 20 years ago would quite commonly have been uh, labeled as uh, colonic Crohn's disease. So let's now consider the role of the colonic microbiota. It's now well recognized that IBD is associated with bacterial dysbiosis. And although there are still unknown questions regarding the biological impacts of this, um, for example, what's the initiating effect in the disease pathogenesis or whether it's a consequence of the mucosal pathology that's present. So what data are, are available to consider from the microbiota aspects of disease classification? Well, all forms of colonic inflammation uh, tend to be associated with reduced diversity of the fecal microbiota. Um, but more specific and I think rather more interesting changes tend to be found in the mucosa-associated microbiota, which is often quite different. Um, in Crohn's disease, these commonly include an increase in proteobacteria, such as E. coli and fusibacteria, and a reduction in anti-inflammatory firmicutes, such as fecalobacteria and prausnitzii. In studies that have clearly separated out patients with isolated chronic Crohn's, uh, the results tend to lie between those from patients with idle Crohn's disease and controls. In other words, there are more modest and less consistent increases in proteobacteria um, and reduction in, in fecalobacteria. So similar changes are seen in small bowel Crohn's, but less marked. Your review considers whether response patterns to treatment support a third phenotype. Tell us more about this. Okay, well, let's um, address mesalazine first. And until we did a, a thorough analysis of the literature, much of it quite old, I must say I hadn't realized that the evidence for lack of therapeutic effect of mesalazine in isolated chronic Crohn's disease uh, is even stronger than for other sites. I think many clinicians have tended to use mesalazine in chronic Crohn's in the hope that it would behave similar to ulcerative colitis. Um, but the lack of therapeutic um, effect, of course, fits quite well with our understanding that the surface epithelial cell is the probable target cell for mesalazine. And this drug is therefore uh, likely to be much more effective in ulcerative colitis where inflammation is more superficial and seems not to work in Crohn's where the inflammation is deeper. For most of the other commonly used treatments, we have the problem that many of these, steroids, thiopurines, and most biologics, for example, are targeting the end result of the inflammatory process. 
Uh, and it's perhaps not surprising that there aren't convincing data to suggest much selective efficacy in different types of inflammatory bowel disease. There is a, a bit of a hint that anti-TNFs may perhaps work slightly better in isolated chronic disease, uh, but only a hint. More interesting, I think, will be the response to treatments that aim to target earlier stages in the pathogenic pathway. Uh, and again, this is one of the hopes, really, of identifying this um, uh, subgroup of patients to target separately. Uh, for antibiotics, for example, there is a suggestion that they may, more may be more effective in isolated chronic disease, uh, but more studies are clearly needed, and we need more studies to ascertain whether or not enteral nutrition as primary therapy is, is helpful in isolated chronic disease. Is there any evidence to support your hypothesis from surgical management and outcome data? Well, there is, of course, well-known evidence that distinguishes surgical outcomes in isolated chronic Crohn's from those in ulcerative colitis. Um, and these indeed have, have driven most of the emphasis on uh, trying to distinguish the two conditions. And these include a much worse response to attempted pouch reconstruction uh, with what is probably an unacceptably high risk of pouchitis and pouch failure in, in clonic Crohn's. Uh, on the other hand, segmental resection in clonic Crohn's uh, can be very successful, uh, whereas it should not be done um, in ulcerative colitis. The most convincing evidence for separation of um, isolated chronic Crohn's from small bowel Crohn's disease, I think, is the low rate of progression to include ileal involvement. So if you start off with isolated chronic Crohn's disease, uh, the rate of progression to include ileal involvement uh, seems to be roughly 10% over 10 years. Uh, and there's also a much lower risk for surgery than in other patients with small bowel Crohn's disease. So uh, the overall risk for surgery in isolated chronic Crohn's is about 22% by 10 years, compared to 42% for ileal colonic and 68% for ileal disease. So taking all this evidence together, are you now convinced that isolated colonic Crohn's disease is a separate phenotype? And what are the outstanding questions in this consideration? Well, we, we now know that there are several different genetic pathways to development of IBD. Um, and indeed, we know that the majority of IBD patients probably don't even have a genetic predisposition. Uh, the environmental factors are therefore even more important, but less well understood. Uh, and they're also multiple. Uh, smoking, diet, vitamin D deficiency, stress, estrogens perhaps, coincidental pathogens, for example. It's likely, therefore, that all of inflammatory bowel disease represents a spectrum uh, ranging from typical ileal Crohn's through to typical ulcerative colitis and with isolated colonic Crohn's somewhere in the middle. Uh, and if we are to understand the causative factors better and also to be better able to tailor treatments more appropriate to the individual. It's very important that future studies, whether of natural history or environmental factors or response to treatment, do their best to separate out different forms of IBD. Uh, currently, there seems to be strong justification for doing this for isolated colonic Crohn's disease. And there's certainly no longer any very strong case for linking it more with Crohn's disease than with ulcerative colitis. My suspicion is that uh, over uh, time, we will identify more environmental factors um, and have a better way of classifying the uh, genetic factors, and we, we may even subdivide further. But at the moment, uh, I think it's important that uh, uh, observational uh, studies and particularly uh, trials of treatment take care to separate out isolated clonic Crohn's so that they can be analyzed separately. So finally, um, how do you see this analysis impacting our clinical management in the future? Well, whilst we continue to use broad-spectrum immunosuppressives and anti-inflammatory treatments, 
there will be relatively little impact on our clinical management. As I've already mentioned, so many of our treatments currently uh, treat the sort of end process of inflammation and therefore work rather than specifically. I am hopeful, though, that treatments and preventative strategies will shift over time towards targeting earlier stages in the pathogenic pathway. We will then find out, for example, whether or not specific antibiotics or, or specific dietary strategies might work selectively in isolated chronic Crohn's disease. And I'm hopeful this approach will eventually lead to more targeted and hopefully safer and more effective treatments. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. I'd like to thank Professor Jonathan Rhodes for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.